Hi and welcome to the CU20 podcast. CU20 is a ministry of People's Church of Montreal. We are a group of young Christians living in Montreal discussing issues of faith and how to serve Jesus in the modern world. We hope you enjoy the podcast today, which is a sermon based on Luke chapter 10. So uh, the part we've come to in the book of Luke is what we've been building to, I think, or just sort of looking at from the horizon for a while now, which is this pivot point where we have been, the first part of Luke is addressing the question of who is Jesus? I think if you've been here for a little while, you'd remember that's come up quite a lot, this question of who is this man who, you know, can command the waves and see who is he who can like, you know, cast out demons. And, and then last week we looked at the transfiguration. And we see the transfiguration in each of the synoptic gospels is this pivot point in the story where all of a sudden something shifts in the atmosphere and then after that Jesus is almost making a beeline for Jerusalem. Uh, that that question of who is he has really been answered. And now that we kind of know who he is, now off to Jerusalem to complete the picture of who he is uh, begins to unfold. And so that was last week. And so that part of the question is behind us. And we still have a lot of the book of Luke left. And so the question is now, what is the rest of the book of Luke about? And the best way we can think about it is the first part of Luke is about that question, who is, who is he, who is Jesus? And the second part of the book of Luke is about the question, how do you follow him? If he is who he says he is, then what does it look like to follow him? Essentially, it's about discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And you're going to find as we go through it, there's a tremendous amount of teaching by Jesus found in the second part of the book of Luke. Uh, and lots of moments and opportunities where people are called out to, to respond in a certain way to him as well. And this passage is no different. This is exactly what this passage is about. Now, what we find in this passage, and I'm going to kind of let you read the most, most of it in your own time, but Luke chapter 10 is where we find ourselves today. And the beginning of Luke chapter 10 is, is this pretty well-known story of the sending of the 72. We see uh, a similar version of the story found in Luke chapter 9 in the sending of the 12, but now we find there's a little nuance and difference in the, when it comes to the sending of the 72. And in the story, what we find is that the, the basic message, if we, we link it to that question of what does it mean to follow him, uh, the basic link we can find there is that being a disciple of Jesus uh, is kind of like getting a birthday cake. Okay? And by that I mean when you get a birthday cake, you're meant to give it away. Right? Like, yeah, you keep a little bit yourself so the metaphor is not perfect. I guess it still applies, but the idea of getting this beautiful, amazing birthday cake full of sprinkles and rainbows is that you cut it up and you give it out. You give it to other people, and if you don't, well, you're a jerk, and you don't get how birthday cakes work. Like, you have to do that. That's the whole point. And Jesus is sending out his disciples, those who he has drawn into himself, come into an intimate relationship with him. Essentially, he's drawn near to them, and they've drawn near to him. And now we see the continuation of the process. They have been brought in so that they can go out. And it's not only here. Obviously, there's the Great Commission. There's a lot of calls in the New Testament to go out and to preach the gospel and to be the witnesses, the, uh, the messengers of Jesus in this world. And this is one such passage where we are called really to go out. And the number 72 is it's kind of a funny number, right? Like, 
just its mere fact makes you think, why 72? Like, it's a bit of a strange number to include. And it's very, very likely that the reason that Jesus chooses 72 to do this is because it's a strong parallel to uh, Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, you find the story of the Table of Nations. And the Table of Nations is this bit of scripture which essentially is explaining where all of the peoples came from. And so it's the very beginning lineage of sort of all the different nations and tribes of the world. Uh, and, you know, and you can think as it goes on, they continue to spread and spread and spread and spread and spread. And so if you look at Genesis chapter 10 and you count the number of names there are in the Table of Nations, guess how many there are? No, no, there is 72. <laughs> 72 is exactly right. There are 72. And so you have this, this strong uh, literary image given to the sending of 72, which is encapsulating this idea of all peoples. In the same way, the table of nations came down to these 72 names that then became all nations. Uh, 72 people uh, giving this sense of completeness to all, that, that all nations uh, are being represented in a sense here, that the whole world is being included, that essentially everyone, the idea is everyone is supposed to be sent. All the peoples are supposed to be sent out. If you become his disciple, you will be sent out as well. It's part of the process. So if this is the, the main idea of the, the, th the thrust of it, then it helps us to think of our lives in a certain way. We should all be messengers. There's a universal call on all disciples of Jesus Christ to go out and to, we have this message given to us to proclaim to him. The message of the coming of the kingdom, the message of the renewed hope that we can have in the work of God. Uh, not only that we are give this message verbally, but then we enact this message. And you see in that, that passage that we are to, you know, we are to heal the sick. We are to, you know, interact in, in different ways. And you, you see at the end of the passage where they're excited that demons are obeying them. Obviously, they're interacting with the spiritual realm as well. And there's a, an authority over it too, and a releasing and a freedom happening there as well. But our lives are supposed to be shaped by this call. This is something that defines what it means to be a disciple uh, and there's a sentness to us that we're designed, we're shaped in order to go out. And so if you take that seriously into heart, then the way that your life looks as a disciple needs to represent that structure. You need to think about the way you're spending your time, the way you're, you're using your words, the way you're uh, engaging in relationships with other people, how you think about the future, all of these ways to adequately make room for that sentness that you're supposed to have. I wanted to do a little, uh, meta, a little imagery here. So, your life before Jesus is a piece of paper, kind of floppy, purposeless, has nothing going for it, and you can just sort of like push it and nothing's going to happen. But then in Jesus, you become an amazing paper airplane, which I haven't tested and I really hope works. You ready? Let's see if I'm going to go this If I hit you in the eye, I am so, so sorry. I'm going to go this way, but I, who knows what's going to happen. So, in Jesus, you get folded and then you are sent. Oh yeah, eh, not bad, not bad. Thank you for your listless applause. <laughs> I don't want it anymore. I don't want to have to ask for applause. So, no thank you. <laughs> We're all meant to join in the task of sharing the good news to others. We are sent, sent to live our lives 
for others. We give our today for their tomorrow, really. You know, like we give our, we give not only for their, you know, tomorrow in this world, but that their eternal tomorrow too. We give our today. We give the life that we have left on this earth in order that more and more we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We proclaim truth. And so we are, we are speaking truth into this world, a truth that has so much confusion as to what is real and what isn't, has so much difference of opinions uh, and, and a lot of very damaging lies out there about you know, what people believe. Uh, we, we are out there to proclaim the truth and in that sense, we are bringing freedom and clarity to people's minds. We're also meant to bring spiritual liberation. Like I said, there's a strong connection here that they are casting out demons, that they are liberating people over the spiritual strongholds that are in people's lives and bringing that spiritual and with it sort of emotional uh, freedom too. And we're also, uh, they're healing the sick, you know, and I think that's representative of, of literal miracles that they did, but also of a care, a mind to repairing what's wrong physically in this world too. We care for those who are sick. Uh, we care for the, the brokenness of families. We don't ignore problems in this world and think, well, well, it'll go away when, when, you know, when heaven comes. No, we do care about these things and we, we're out to try to bring repair to them as well. So this is our goal. As disciples, we, we go out with this, this mindset. We're sent out in this way. And in the passage, you see the 72 go out and they do this and they come back and they are rejoicing. Like Hope said earlier, I mean, they're just full of joy. They're absolutely over the moon because of all that's happening. They come back to Jesus and they say, oh, we are so excited. Even the demons submitted to us in your name. And that would be a fairly sufficient end to the story. I mean, if the story ended there, there'd be nothing at all wrong with that because it would have bring, brought conclusion and a sense of uh, joy to the moment. But that isn't the end of the story. Jesus continues to talk. And this is the part that I think a lot of people don't really talk about. Like I said, Luke 10, uh, the sending of the 72, it's a fairly well-known story. Uh, the problem with the passages that we're about to read today is they kind of sandwich between two really, really cool stories. Like the setting of the 7-2 has these cool, this cool kind of ness to it. And then the next story is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is like, oh, okay, cool. Good, the parable of the Good Samaritan, so amazing. Which it is incredibly amazing. But not to, the, not to forget about this part. What Jesus says next is really important. It's amazingly important, and yet so often we don't really think about it. We don't talk about it. And yet in it we find this key that when we unlock this part of our heart, is going to radically change our life and what it means to, to live as a human in this world. And so we're going to read the passage together now and to, to look at what Jesus Christ is trying to do in this story. Because he, he doesn't end it. He, he uses this opportunity to teach them something incredibly valuable. So Luke chapter 10, verse 17 to 24 is what we're going to read together. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, 
for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then He turned to His disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Let's pray together. Dear God, help us not to miss the importance of what Jesus is saying here. Help us to really get this incredibly counter, counter <laughs> human message, uh, so different from how we live lives and how we structure ourselves. Help us, God, to see this and to respond with this amazing sense of rejoicing that we see Jesus model for us. We pray, God, that you would arrest our attention and open our ears, open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, there's so much to unpack here, and I'm, I feel really limited in what I can say because I mean, there's just too much to go through. If you have the chance to unpack this passage for yourself, make it a priority to do so. It's an amazing part of the passage. But what we find here is the question we can ask ourselves is, what is the joy or what is the drive of your life? And you can subcategorize it a little more and say, what is the joy or drive of your Christian life? What gives you joy? as a Christian? What gives you joy as a human being? Like, What is that thing that drives you forward to go out and to do what you do in this world? What we find here is Jesus pointing us away from a certain kind of joy and drive towards another. The disciples come back and they're full of joy because the demons, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus is pointing them away from that type of grounding for their joy and pointing them towards something else. I think this is because Jesus recognizes at the core of it, there's this joy that they're experiencing. If that is the foundation of their joy, then it's going to be unhelpful to them. They're going to be missing something. It's going to break apart at some point. Because notice what they don't say. They don't come back and say, Jesus man, we helped so many people. Or, oh, Jesus, you know, we saw so many miracles. Or so many people, you know, were, were moved and, and touched by our preaching. Maybe even that would be not that great. But what they do say is, the demons submitted to us in your name. There's a sense of power that they're excited about. There's a sense of importance that they're excited about. Like, there's something, like, we have... We've accomplished something here. We've seen power here. We've seen uh, success here. And what Jesus is pointing them away from is using accomplishment or success as the foundation for your joy. Because if your joy is being fueled by this desire to simply succeed, then dangerous things can happen. Firstly, you can, that can very quickly become a very prideful thing because it is about what I do and what I can do. And my joy, think about this, if your joy is found in your success, 
then your success becomes paramount because it's got your joy attached to it. And if your success becomes paramount, then it means you can start neglecting things and, and, and focusing on things that you shouldn't be focused on in order to bring about that success. It's okay to be happy when things go well in your life. It's, it's okay to feel joy. I mean, I think it's appropriate that they, would, they felt joy about the fact that there was success. But if that's the foundation of your joy, if that's where it comes from, if that's the root of it, it's going to lead you to a fairly unhelpful place. If your joy rests in your importance or in your success, then failure is going to rob you of your joy. More than that, failure will even threaten your whole existence because you'll begin to live in such a way that's like, I am nothing if I don't succeed. I have nothing if my life isn't a success. And so it can feed that sense of pride, but it can also feed that sense of fear of not being able to, to take it lightly when things don't go well, when things fall apart. And what Jesus points them to is a far better drive, a far better sense of joy. Now, we can know this cognitively, but to know it intuitively, to understand this at a deep level is going to be so much more difficult for us. We all, our default setting is to find joy or find our joy based in our accomplishments, based in uh, what we are doing with the time given to us. That is our default setting. We are a works-based creature. And if our works are going well, then we're joyful. If our works are going badly, we are not joyful. We have lost that sense of joy. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to turn this big ship uh, that is our heart. That I don't know if you know, but if you try to turn a ship, it takes a long time and a lot of energy to be able to turn the ship around. And you could, that's kind of a good metaphor for your heart. Your heart is a very big ship going very much in one direction. And to be able to turn that around will take time. But that's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to let go of that drive, that drive for success, that drive for accomplishment and importance and power, to be the thing that motivates us to go out into this world and to, and to do things. And he's saying, feel joy, feel drive to go out and do it, but feel it based on a radically different idea. Your joy should be based on the fact that your name is written in the book of life. Now, that's huge. Every religion of the time at that time that we know of had this idea of judgment day. That a day is going to come, and, and so many religions today as well do, a day is going to come where you are going to stand there and you're going to find out, was my life good enough or was it not? And the book, you know, maybe it wasn't a book in every religion, but the equivalent of a book would be opened up and you would find out, is my name there or is my name not? But everyone knew that day was coming. It wasn't here. It was coming. And Jesus saying, your name is already written in the book. You, you don't have to wait for that day to find out. You don't have to wait for that day to know whether your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds or, or whatever it is. Right now, as a past tense, your name is written in the book of life. And that needs to be the foundation of your joy. Rejoice in what you already are. Rejoice in what is already completed for you, that your name is already written.
Now that is going to be a much sturdier and stronger sense of joy. That joy based on the grace of God and His salvation is a joy that is unshakable. It is a joy that is, it's, uh, it, it's found, it's, how do I say it rightly? It's, it cannot fluctuate. It's there, it's permanent, it's strong. And this is also going to give you the right motivation to be who he says we should be. At the very beginning of chapter 10, he says, I'm sending you out like lambs among the sheep. I'm sorry, among the wolves. Like lambs among the wolves. How is it that we are to go then? Uh, what kind of motivation, motivation it will do? Well, to know that our joy, our drive is resting in a past accomplishment, something that has been done for us means that, number one, we can be courageous and to go out as a lamb among wolves takes a tremendous amount of courage. But we can go out into this world, this world that's going to take a lot of courage to go into sometimes. Why? Because they can't really hurt us. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying here. You've been given authority. You, because of me, you're going to be a go out of this world and they're not going to really be able to hurt you. Now, they do hurt us. But they don't hurt us in a way that is meaningful, really. Because the worst thing they can do is kill us. And if you kill us, you just bring us to Jesus. That's it. That's what they got. And so Jesus is saying, you can rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the book of life. This is going to give you courage. Because going out into this world, you can go out knowing that they're not going to be able to hurt you. Because it's written. It's done. It's past <coughs> tense. But also, you can go out with a sense of gentleness like a lamb. You go out into this world with gentleness and a gentleness that's not really possible if your joy, your drive is based on a success model. Because if it's based on a success model, then success becomes the thing that you need. And so you can become very aggressive about it. Or when things don't go right, you can become incredibly dismissive about people because they're threatening your joy. But you can have gentleness because you don't need their approval. You don't need them to respond rightly to you. You don't need people to clap when you throw a, a paper plane that doesn't go so well. It doesn't matter. I appreciate it, but I don't need it, Poggi. My joy is in the fact that my name is written in the Book of Life. We can do this because there's, our joy is resting in something far greater and stronger than it is well. So Jesus calls out this greater, stronger sense of joy, drive out of us. And not only does he call it out of us, but then he, he does it. And this beautiful passage that, I don't know, like I, it seems unique to me. I don't think it's totally unique, but it's not often that we see Jesus erupting in praise. And that's really what we find here in verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, begins to praise God. And the word rejoice or full of joy is kind of bland compared to what, I mean, what it's trying to describe here. Uh, the a good way of understanding what the, you know, the power of this word full of joy is, was that he is, uh, you know, he's exalting God. He's erupting with praise. He's thrilled by joy. It's a very, very expressive term that's being used here. I mean, Jesus is so full of joy in this moment. And, he's, and what is it that he's rejoicing in? Well, when you read through, what you see is that he's rejoicing in grace. He's rejoicing in the gospel. He's rejoicing in the fact that 
now we see an unfolding of God's plan and we're seeing that it's not the strong who are chosen. It's not the accomplished who get it. It's the meek. It's the nothing. It's the children of this world that are being brought into the kingdom of God. It's those who abandon all the ideas of what the world thinks is what you need to be a success. Those who, are, who don't chase after those things but come after Him instead, who understand grace, those are the ones who are coming in. It's not a merit-based model. It's not a performance-based uh, way of going. It's pure grace. God's love is breaking into this world. And because it's breaking in the way that it is, in a way that undermines the sinful structures of our hearts that seek to categorize us all the time and seek to put ourselves above others and to create these hierarchies of power which are totally uh, you know, ungodly. It's coming in and it's saying, I'm choosing the weak. I'm choosing the nothing. I'm choosing the children of this world. And so it's undermining all of these structures and Jesus saying, at last, it's happening at last. And then he turns to the disciple and he says, me, you know, what I'm doing, what I'm bringing, you got to realize, you know, the prophets longed to see this. The godly kings, they longed to see this. And you get to see this. You get to experience what they longed for. This inbreaking of the kingdom is this grace that, that God is pouring out on his people is uh, uh, coming into the world. And Jesus is celebrating the gospel. And the word that he uses to call that out of us is a word that is a, it's a kind of a perfect continuous sense. So when Jesus says rejoice, he means rejoice and keep on rejoicing in the gospel. Keep on rejoicing in the fact that your names are written in heaven. That's what Jesus is calling out of us, to rejoice and keep on rejoicing in the gospel. The grace of the gospel is this lasting reality that will usher us into eternity and it can sustain us throughout our whole life. I've said it before quite a few times, but it bears repeating. The joy of the gospel or gratitude for the gospel or amazement in the gospel is not something that Christians ever graduate out of. You as a Christian should never reach a point where you think, okay, gospel, I got that. Moving on to something else, like, yes, I understand that. You know, it's like, I don't know, like if you learn, if you're like a scientist, right? And you became a scientist because at the beginning you were just fascinated with like, I don't know, an atom or something like that, like the structure of an atom. There should be a point at which like, okay, I get that now and there's more to discover, there's more to understand. And as a Christian, there's absolutely a huge amount more to discover, but you never graduate over that first thing. You never look back at a point of being like, okay, that's kind of boring now. No way. You as a Christian should always be rejoicing in the gospel, rejoicing in the fact that your name is written in the book of life. And I think that the reason that we so often get downcast or fall into temptation or get discouraged or anxious is because we forget this joy. We forget how secure we are in Him. We forget how incredible this grace is that we've been given. I, I remember, um, it's happened to me a few times, I suppose, but one time in particular, I remember it really strongly happening. I, when I graduated high school and I finished my, my last exam that I would ever write as a high school student, 
Um, and obviously it's a big deal, like that, those final exams at that point are the, the most important things that you've ever done in your educational life to this point. And so I had worked tremendously hard on studying for these exams. And then I wrote the last one and I remember sitting at home. I drove home after the exam and I sat on my bed and I'm like, ah, like I got nothing to do. And it was such a weird, unnerving feeling to be free. And I kid you not, a couple days, like for like a week afterwards, I would wake up every now and then with a sense of panic. I'd wake up in the morning with a sense of anxiety being like, oh my gosh, like something bad is about to happen. Like, I don't know, it was just like a, a, a ripple effect or something, some leftover anxiety from the exams. But I would wake up in a panic thinking like, oh, I've forgotten something or I'm, I, I'm, I'm late or something. And then I would realize, oh no, I'm free. Like, I'm done, I'm done. It's over. And I think that's what it should feel like as a Christian. Well, we have this tendency to, to go back into old ways of thinking, old ways of relating to ourselves and to others and to God. We should have these moments of clarity when we realize what the gospel is again and realize, oh no, I'm free. I'm free. I'm okay. Or when we're tempted by things and we realize, no, 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 this, I'm a child of God. Like, that's not who I am anymore. I'm not the person who needs to find satisfaction in this or that. I can trust in God. I can trust in Him and keep going. There's so much outworking to this. Now, it's at this point in the sermon that I want to kind of uh, just mention something because I, I hate it when other preachers do this. I'm going to deviate from the text somewhat because I'm going to start talking about something that's not really present in this text, but I think is an important connection I want to make, okay? So I'm just going to say that for the point of clarity. If you get to the end of my sermon and feel like, that's not what the text means, I know. I'm elaborating out of it. I'm, I, I don't think anything I'm going to say next is anti-biblical at all. I think it's all completely biblical. But I know it's not really based on this text alone. So just, you know, cut me some slack, okay? The two truths that we can find in this text, the first one is that we are sent out in the name of Christ to others. We are sent out. All of us have this sentness to our life. We're supposed to adopt this as a model of, of living. Like We've got, we got to go out. That's part of the purpose we have. And the second thing, specifically in the passage we read today, is that the gospel it should be the foundation of our joy. And we should, it should be the source of joy throughout our whole life. And it's that thing that kind of brings us back to Him, I believe. It's the thing that brings us back to to true Orthodox Christianity again and again, where we've received once again that joy of our salvation. So holding on to those two truths together, I want to consider, I want you to consider something, and I want you to, to call you to this. I'm, I want you to consider that your call is to be a messenger into Christian community. And I'll explain why that's the case. It's very obvious and it shouldn't be undermined at all, and I hope I'm not going to undermine it in what I say next. It's very obvious that we are called to go out of the church and to preach the gospel. But what I want to suggest is that though salvation begins outside or begins at a moment of someone coming into a Christian community, that isn't where it ends. That salvation, the, I don't want to call it a process, it's, it's not a process because it's not something that kind of you know, builds and builds and builds over your life. It begins in a moment, you have salvation in that moment, but it outworks itself over periods of time, over your whole life. 
that salvation is something that's always being worked out in your life. And for that process to happen, it takes us being messengers for each other. It takes us coming together as a community and being messengers of the gospel towards one another. We have a tendency to forget the gospel, even when we believe it. We have a tendency to drift. And if we don't take that tendency seriously and then work to go in the opposite direction, then I think we're going to do ourselves a great disservice. You know, when I look at the, the way that God works, and you see this in the Old Testament and the New, what he does, he takes a bunch of haphazard, broken individuals, and he brings them together as this kind of motley crew, and he says, I'm going to do something amazing with you. But when you look at the process throughout it all, it's a rough, rocky process. You think about what Moses has to endure in, in, you know, in the book of uh, Exodus, where you have this nation, millions of people, who for the last 400 years have been slaves, and have very much adopted a slavery mindset. Like they just... You know, they are slaves, their parents were slaves, their grandparents were slaves, da 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 back for many, many generations now, they have been slaves. And he brings them all together and he says, you are a chosen nation. You are a holy people. You are loved. You are, uh, you know, you, you are set apart by God. And the problem they fall into is they keep on sinning. They have this stubbornness of heart. They have this faithlessness. They're complaining all the time. They're just this grumpy bunch. And part of me completely understands because they're slaves. Everything about their mind and their heart has been shaped by this reality. And now it's like coming along and saying, I know you've been thinking about yourself this way for so long, but now I want you to think about yourself radically differently. That ship takes a while to turn. And you see it happening. They keep falling back into old habits. They keep complaining and saying, I just want to go back to, 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 to Egypt. Crazy. But they keep doing this. And it's because there's a huge difference between what they hear God saying and what they have come to believe about themselves and what they know deep down about themselves too. They struggle with this new identity. Now the problem is, it's true. They are a chosen people. They are a royal, uh, you know, a royal uh, priesthood. They are a holy nation. That is who they are. We know it's who they are because that's who God says they are. And that's the truest thing about you. Whatever God says about you is the most true thing about you. Yet it takes time. It takes time to work itself into their hearts. It takes time for them to let go of these bad habits, to really begin to live as a chosen priesthood, as a royal nation. The same applies to our lives. We are a royal priesthood. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says it. We are a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 says that. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says that. We have these things that are true of you. That is who you are if you have become a Christian. It's true because God says it's true, and yet our reality so often falls short of these titles. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, Am I going to live in light of who God says I am or am I going to live in light of who I, have, who I say I am? Am I going to be an exile or am I going to be elected? 
Am I going to be a slave or am I going to be chosen? Am I going to be captive to sin or am I going to live my life in service to God? We need to think about who we are and who we are becoming and that process is part of what salvation means. The way that the, um, the Israelites were already chosen. I mean, they were already in. Like, they had been rescued from slavery. Now, they had to go through the process of becoming what they were. And the sad reality for them is that those who did not persevere, those who didn't go faithfully on that process, fell away. And they were destroyed in the process. There are a lot of Christians. Well, there are a lot of people. I'll say that. There are a lot of people who begin... Uh, seemingly a Christian walk that fall away. And what we need to realize is that perseverance is part of what it means to be a Christian. If you're a Christian, it means persevering. And the Christian life is not static. Perseverance means advancing, going forward. Because there's no neutral for a Christian. Either you're going forwards or you're going backwards. But the process of perseverance is... Um, is forward. It's advancing as well. And I, I believe that, number one, the Bible makes clear that perseverance is a necessity, that those who hold on to their faith till the end are those who will be proven to have genuine faith. And those who do not persevere will not. And that process happens within community. I think another thing that the Bible absolutely makes clear is that perseverance is a community project. Don't we all love group projects? But it is. Perseverance is a, is a community project. Paul uh, encourages Timothy of this in 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. He says this, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, don't take that. I mean, obviously, there's very much a context to that verse and there's the whole breadth of Scripture to balance it with. But it got, it, what it shows is, and I think you can show it in other parts of Scripture as well, us being together is what facilitates the perseverance that is required as a Christian. What I mean by that is the words you speak into this community are what help us to bring salvation forward to work out that salvation. I'm not talking about growth. Growth is important and, and important, uh, sorry, important and absolutely necessary, but I'm talking about actual salvation here. That that perseverance, that absolute necessity for salvation to be salvation happens within the context of community. Now we have a tendency to forget the grounding of our joy. We have a tendency to forget and to live out of the old nature versus the new. What comes in and helps us to overcome these tendencies that we all share is each other. The words that we have. Consider the fact that you are sent to be a messenger, not only out there to the world, but a messenger into this community. That your words carry weight and importance within this community. That you're called to speak the words of life to us so that we remember them. And by your encouragement and by your input, we continue to persevere as well. We get reminded again of the truths of Scripture. We get the encouragement to keep going on. We together, as a community, need to preach and teach, encourage and admonish one another so 
that we might cause each other to persevere in faith to glory. This is the absolute necessity of community within Christianity because it's one of these exercises of grace. That's one of the, what the kind of a Puritan term for it, an exercise of grace. That this is one of the ways in which it's an avenue of grace being poured out upon us, that we get to speak the words of grace to each other. We get to be reminded of these things and to, to in, encourage each other in such a way that facilitates our perseverance as well as your perseverance as well. So my challenge to you today is jumping off of this passage in which, number one, we see we are messengers, and number two, we see the real grounding of our joy is to consider the fact that you are called to be a messenger into this community to remind us all of the grounding of our joy, of the gospel. Given our tendency to forget, given our, the necessity to persevere, it to me makes complete sense that God would call you to become a messenger within this community to all of us as well. To give yourself into the community and point to the truth, point to the presence of God. Point us back, continually pointing us back to the cross, pointing us back to our Lord and Savior. And now, a huge outworking of this is real strong relationships. And one of the ways we can facilitate that is within small groups. Exactly what Jess was saying, that's not, she's not gonna be alone in this. We are in the process right now of trying to bring about more small groups uh, among our young adult community. We want this to happen. We want more small groups to happen. And so if you feel called to lead a group like that, come and speak to me. I want to hear from you. If you feel called to be part of it, get ready because there's going to be a news coming about what that's going to look like as well. There's one of the Puritans, I want to quote him here. His name is Richard Sibbs. And he, uh, <coughs> he says this, It is not sleepy habits, but grace in exercise that persevereth us. It causes us to persevere. It is not sleepy habits. Sleepy habits, we all know what those are, right? The type of things that we so commonly do. But grace in exercise. We have been given the gift of grace. That is salvation. That is the gospel. How do we exercise these things? How do we bring them forward? We do so within community. So let us rejoice and spur one another on to rejoice in the gospel as well. And as we do so, we are messengers to each other and help each other to persevere. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your amazing reminder in this passage of what the grounding of our joy truly is. We thank you so much for it. And we pray, Lord, that you might help us to take seriously our obligation to be messengers out there in the world, absolutely. And also messengers within this community. To not see the, the role of teaching and admonishing to simply be that of the pastor or the leaders. But God, help us to all see together that we bear a responsibility to speak the words of truth. The, the, I mean, the, the words of the coming of the kingdom, the words of the gospel into each other's lives. And in so doing, help each other to persevere. Lord, we hand our community as a whole over to you and we hand our lives individually over to you as well and we pray lord that as we come together you might make us greater than the sum of our parts you might make us into a glorious body of christ that goes from strength to strength we pray this in jesus name
Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. If you'd like to find out more about CU20 and People's Church of Montreal, please just visit our website. You'll find us by Googling People's Church of Montreal. There you'll find links to other sermons and information about where we meet and at what time. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day.